Welcome to the So To Speak podcast. I'm Christy Mandor, and I'm so glad you found your way here. As an energy leadership and mindset coach, I work with high achieving leaders and entrepreneurs to support them in getting out of their heads and back into doing the meaningful work that lights them up. In this podcast, you're going to be hearing conversations with leaders, creatives, entrepreneurs, trailblazers, and change makers who share their stories and strategies that help them to continue on when the inevitable mental quicksand comes to take them down. My hope is that by listening in on each episode, you leave feeling less alone and more relieved, reset, and reconnected with yourself and a possible shift in perspective that supports you in reigniting your passion and unwavering dedication to doing the work you came here to do. I'm glad you're here. Chances are, if you are of the human race, you've had the desire to write a book. And chances also are high that the idea left your mind as soon as it arrived. You're so not alone. Upwards of 80% of Americans say that they want to write a book. And those who actually start, guess how many see it through to completion? 3%. 3% actually see it through and only 1% see it published. There are many reasons for this. One of which is that they didn't have the right support system to guide them through every step of the way. Lucky for you, our friends over at Scripter Publishing Group have given So To Speak listeners $250 off their From Polished to Print package. This is the golden enchilada of book writing to help you take your dream and see it published. The link to cash in there is in the show notes below. And if you're wondering where to even start, go ahead and give Kelly a call. She's happy to guide you towards the best direction to take. And you can book that call over at scripterpublishinggroup.com. And while you're there, be sure to take a look at their latest offering of a writing retreat in Ireland, one of the most beautiful countries in the world, so I hear, June 23rd to the 29th, 2024. Again, all of that can be found down in the show notes below. Happy, happy writing. Welcome back to another episode of the So To Speak podcast. This series is a continuation It's Create Like a Mother, which is a series that I created to really focus on how important it is to remain whole through all of the ups and downs of parenting. And when this episode was rolling out, I had no idea what was going to be happening globally in our world. And the timeliness of each episode and the messages that each of the guests are offering us is such light and it's such love. And we often hear that in the spiritual world and in the personal development world, the phrase love and light, and it can really dim love and light because like anything, when we overuse phrases, it loses its power. And truly these guests are the ones who are showing up just like you are. Because the reason that you're here is because you are one of the humans who are bringing light and love into our world. And so my hope each time that you tune in is that you gain some sense of a reminder that what you're doing in the world, no matter where you're located, is so necessary right now. And our guest today is someone who I am so grateful for her being in the world. 
Catherine Morgan Schaffler is the author of The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control, A Path to Peace and Power. And her book is, is one of those books that when you read it, there is a before you and an after you. If I had the money and the reach to drone drop her book onto every single doorstep in our world, I would do it in a heartbeat. Because Catherine offers us such support and encouragement and honesty, and she's so real. She is so real. Not to mention that she is one of the most exceptional writers that I've come across. And you'll find that out when you read her book. But for now, our episode is one that touches my heart in such a way that when I went back to edit it, it was the first time I cried during an edit because what she is saying is not just so resonant and so visceral and so necessary right now, but it's so universal. And so my hope is that by listening into our conversation, you go back into the world feeling not just more resilient, but also more reassured and more compassionate with yourself that wherever you're at in life, you are exactly where you need to be. Catherine and I talk about how patience is not passivity. We discuss the importance of self-forgiveness so that you are not betraying yourself. We talk about the gifts that we offer to our kids when we really take a look under our own hood with love and with compassion and with patience. And she also shares the number one predictor of resilience and longevity. And something that I feel everybody, including myself, needs some perspective on is how to trust ourselves while also discerning between what rumination looks and feels like versus reflection that exhausting rumination that we all go through where we just fall into our minds so quickly and how to shift into true, healthy reflection. So without further ado, please sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with the incredible Catherine Morgan Schaffler. I was just starting to sing your praises offline and then I was like, let's just start recording because this needs to be shouted from the rooftops. I so am in love with your book. And I was just saying, I don't give compliments very lightly, what, especially when it comes, cause I think they're so much more meaningful when you don't <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. when you don't, when you know, you're getting a compliment from someone who doesn't just throw them around like rice at a wedding, yeah. you know, that it's meaningful. And there's so much within your book that I was like hugging it. Like, thank you. I, I was feeling so reassured. I was feeling so, um, less alone. I was actually feeling excited about feeling like many different, which we'll get into types of perfectionist. And the one thing that I feel stood apart from so many books that are, I don't know if this would be considered within like personal development or where you would, where would it be? What's it under? Um, So it's sometimes listed in personal development. Sometimes it's in like business books and leadership. Okay. It's a little bit of a bender book, you know, it doesn't quite fit neatly into any particular genre. Yeah. And which is a testament to what a broad scope it is and how much what you're talking about with 
being a perfectionist really affects so many people. But the one thing I'll say, whether it's in business or leadership or professional development or personal development, there is this sense. It's so not didactic. There's this sense of like, you're a co-conspirator. Like you're like, Mm. let me tell you how you can shift gears. And I'm going to give you some tools that you can use. And it's like, truly feels like support and not this I'm going to tell you what to do in this preachy sense. So, and that's not an easy feat and you're a phenomenal writer. So kudos to you. Thank you so much. That's such a great compliment. And what I hear in that compliment is there's a lot of chances to connect in the book to something more than just facts and information. And that was really my intention behind writing this book and sending it out into the world, because I think so much of healing is not an informational issue. It's not like we don't know really what to do. I mean, occasionally for me, uh, sometimes an author or speaker or leader puts it in a way in which I, I can, it finally clicks. Um, but most of the time, the block is a, a disconnection of some kind, right? A disconnection to the information and to your readiness to take in that information and animate it in your life. And so I wrote a book with a ton of great, useful, helpful, practical, all the things, information in it, but that didn't mean anything to me if people didn't connect to it. So I tried to make it, you know, as much as of a conversation totally that I could. And so it means a lot to hear you frame it in that way. Totally. I love how you said conversation because that's so, you really did feel like it was a dialogue in its own way, which is, that's not easy to do and write. I mean, you're a fantastic writer and you're, you're really funny. Like you're, you're (laughs) punctuation. Like you always, like there was this like kind of snarky, like winky kind of use of the period. That's like the one thing I would say, like things that people would put an exclamation mark or they would make you're just like, no, this is period. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I, I think I, um, miss the mark when it's trying to, when you're trying to be funny, but sometimes it's like, I'm, it's hard to explain. Um, but I just make my own rules up for punctuation. And I'm like, these commas, like my copywriting team, God bless them. We're like, Oh, the semicolon goes here. No. And I'm like, no, I just use punctuation to talk about when I pause <laughs> it's like to the conversational quality of the book. It's like every time you would take a breath while speaking or talking, that's when I kind of pepper in that stuff. And I think it comes across in a different way. than, like you said, like this didactic formality, because it's not formal, you know, it isn't. And you, you were able to, and I, I want to ask you this too, you were able to grant access to people, I believe from that approach, because this is a huge topic that people feel very shameful about and very embarrassed about. And also some people aren't even aware of that. There are five types, which we'll get into a perfectionist. And so I, I do feel like that humor and that humble and that, um, very relatable approach that you took was so wise, whether it seems like maybe part consciously and probably part unconsciously, just because as you flow through writing, but it's like that really mm-hmm. did grant access for people to be able to digest it and not be in this defense mode reading, you know, I what hope are your so. thoughts? I hope so. Yeah. 
Well, I think first of all, 80% of the work for me is remembering what I already know and like managing this amnesia that I have about knowing the right thing to do and understanding that I'm no good to anybody if I'm not taking care of myself, understanding that if I'm not honoring my integrity and my you know, values are not in line with my actual everyday actions, it is going to feel bad for me in some way. It's like remembering that is so hard, you know? And so the humility piece of like, I do have expertise in the work and the process of therapy, but I don't have expertise in any person. You know, you're the expert on yourself, on what you need, on who you are, on what you've outgrown, on what might work for you and what might not. Like nobody can tell you that stuff except for you. And so my job as a therapist and in this case as an author is to lay out as many different um sort of perspectives and say, some of these are not going to land with you. Forget about them. Some of these might land with you two years from now. You know, like some of these are going to feel really salient for you and are going to feel like, you know what, that applies to me. And those are the ones that you need to follow. And so it's not a prescriptive book. I personally don't think there is a prescription on how to be human. And, and I know we love, especially perfectionists. Uh, and I myself relate to this. Like I love in, in some sense, the fantasy of like 30 days to a better you, you know, here's my acronym of like what super means. It's like, da, 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 you know, six steps that, and it's all sort of like punchy and truncated and this like brochure pamphlety kind of life that doesn't, it's not real. It doesn't speak to the pain that we're all in. And even when we manage a good chunk of that pain, if you're someone who's interested in growing and learning and developing deeper relationships, you're going to continually and vigorously cycle through different versions of yourself. You're going to have to constantly be recalibrating and that can be fun and exciting and connective and and more than you ever thought it could. And it can also be really hard and uncomfortable and hurt. And so it's that balance of expansion and feeling connected enough to try something new, to try on a new identity, to try a new way of approaching a very old problem and contraction where it's like, sometimes the healthy thing to do is actually to take pause is to be still, is to do nothing, to not mistake patience for passivity. Mm. You know, I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to like make a plan. And if I don't have a plan and I'm not acting out the plan, then I'm not doing anything and I'm not growing. But some seasons are really to process and, and just try to like let the dust settle. We go through so much and we don't give ourselves the chance to really take pause and let things settle so that we can take in the new view and see what we like and what we don't and what works and what, you know, it's like, if we want to pull this all back down to earth, it's like when I plan an outfit in my head and I'm like, oh, that's going to be so cute. And then I put it on and I'm like, this doesn't work. I don't feel good in this. I don't feel like myself. And I think we do that on a larger scale with so many of these kind of personal growth things of like, it's going to make sense that this is my goal. And then I try to approach this goal in this way. 
And then we kind of try to act that out and then we don't feel like ourselves. And we realize that like these things that we're thinking do not match us holistically because we're not just thinking machines. We have feelings and instincts and souls and we're humans and we're also beings. And there's like a spiritual component to all of this, which is a little mysterious and kind of, that's the thing where it's like, only, you know, nobody can tell you because nobody has access to that part of you except for you. So that's kind of my, um, you know, 30,000 feet in the air approach to self-help nonfiction kind of works. There's so much in what you just said. I was, I was trying to like stay with you and then process what you were saying. Cause there were each piece was so profound, specifically the patience per, for passivity. I was just like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, like how often do we have a tendency, especially as perfectionists to feel the sense of if we are going to slow down, then yeah. there is some, I, I, it's, I almost am not finding the words because there's so much fear behind what's going to happen. What do you think it right. is about that resistance? It's the visibility. Um, it's such an important point you're bringing up. It's the visibility and the metric of visibility where it's like, I can see that I'm getting up every day at five. So that means I'm doing mm. something Yes. Okay. or that I'm applying to 10 graduate schools. So that means I'm doing something or I'm working until 11. And there's all these quantifiable things that you can count and measure And when we are on, you know, shaky grounds in terms of being able to unequivocally know that we're worthy, you know, that we deserve love, time, patience, fun, rest, whether we're doing a ton of stuff or not, um, we kind of look to the scoreboard of these traditionally, you know, these metrics of productivity. And you can be very actively doing something that is an internal process that is not visible to anybody, including yourself. And there's a lot of emotional acrobatics that come along with, you know, for example, opening up yourself to a new stage of life, right? Of saying, what would it be like if I went for that promotion? Okay, that would require me to really own and uh, my sense of authority over this. And that might look like, you know, spending some time doing embodiment work where you're like, I'm going to sit with myself and this idea of this is who I am now. Oh, I'm not that person anymore. I'm not a totally different person. And there are parts of this person that are still in me. And to use your you know, word that you said before, let me recalibrate. Calibration is invisible. And for high functioning people, most of the work of growth is invisible, Mm. right? If you're in a crisis and you're, you know, for example, really struggling with addiction and you have no housing stability and, you know, your growth in the beginning is going to look really visible. It's going to be like, okay. I've been able to stay clean for three days. I have applied for 
housing in this, you know, way, the applications in, and I have my interview scheduled and it's all going to be like soothing because you're going to see that you're doing stuff. But when you're operating at a level, which is like not a visible crisis, you can't see any of that. And it's really disorienting sometimes because we lose faith in ourselves that we're, we're actually working and we're doing a lot. Thinking, for example, is a, the second stage of change in these two researchers, brilliant researchers, Prochaska and DiClemente created this five stage model of change. And I really, I put that in the book and I encourage people to think about change that way. Cause we think about change as like, we're on this side of the fence and then we changed and we're on the other side of the fence. And it's a one step. Now, you know what? If you want to quit smoking, you just got to quit. And if you want to, you know, start a podcast, you just got to put that first podcast out there. And that action, that visible action part is actually the fourth stage of change. So the first stage is pre-contemplation. Contemplation meaning thinking. You're not even thinking about it. You're just going through life, collecting experiences. And then you're like, you know what? I want to start a podcast. I, I think maybe. And then second stage is, You've hit that turn where you're like, oh, I want this. You've brushed up against a desire to either start something or stop something or be a kind of person or not be that person anymore. And you brush elbows with that desire or shoulders, whatever the expression is, whichever body part you brush up, <laughs> you brush up against something. And then you go, what? wait a minute, what would that be like? Could I do that? No, I couldn't do that. Maybe I could. Let me think about who else is doing it. What do I like about this? If I'm going to launch a podcast, what do I not want it to be? Like? And you're thinking and you're thinking and you're thinking. And when people think a lot about maybe I should, you know, start to date again. Maybe I don't want to have children. Maybe I do want to start a podcast. That thinking sometimes takes months and years and it's important and critical because if you're not engaging in that stage, you're living very unconsciously and you're living in a state of reactivity instead of proactivity where you think about something and then you do it as opposed to reactivity where the only way you're going to be doing a podcast is if your friend goes, Hey, I'm doing a podcast. Want to do it with me? And you're like, <laughs> yeah, or no. And it's just like, there's no you in anything, right? So the, the second stage is thinking. And then the third stage is preparing. So you have to be like, okay, well, what topic of the podcast would I want it to be on? How do I get the right microphone? How do I do this? How do I do that? The fourth stage is action. That's when you do the thing. And the fifth stage, which people really minimize, but is actually the stage that requires the most work and energy is maintenance. Mm -hmm. That's when it's like, anybody can start a podcast. Can you consistently produce a podcast for more than three weeks? Cause that's hard. You know, what do you do when you're like audio engineer quits? Then what? You know, it's like, can you roll with the punches and can you maintain this new role, job, sobriety, energy, identity that you have brought into the world? And so all of those components are part of changing and growing and developing. And we totally wrongly over index on action. Mm -hmm. thinking that's where that's the only thing that matters. And that's the only metric to count because when people are in that thinking stage, 
they're often, not always, but often the mentality is all I do is think about changing and think about, you know, eating better and think about doing this or think about moving. And I never actually do it. And da, 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 da. Well, you never actually do it because it takes time to think about how to do that in your signature way that is right for you. But if you let yourself get looped into that negative self-talk, it creates a false narrative about who you are, that you're someone who's lazy, that you're someone who only thinks about stuff and doesn't actually take action. And then you start to believe it and then you get stuck. And so a lot of, um, a lot of growth happens while you're still in stillness. And sometimes that stillness is filled with thinking. Sometimes it's filled with feeling, feeling grief, feeling the loss even if it's, you know, something that you choose, like you knew a relationship wasn't good for you and you let it go, that's still a loss, you know, um, a loss of your old self, a loss of whatever it is. Um, you got to feel that stuff. And if you just go through life with this metric of doing, 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 and never being or feeling or processing, you're going to wake up in like five or six years and look around and not recognize your life. Mm. You're going to feel disassociated on some level because you are, because you're not in it. Well, and it sounds like getting clarity on what the do, what's the intention behind the doing versus just having it be default from whether it be society, whether it be your family of origin, belief systems that are just running through your system and actually pausing. And that can be a, its own grief process, right? Like just paying attention to like what beliefs have seeped into you and what beliefs are consciously yours and being able to, I would say it's like going in the closet and t dumping all the clothes on the bed and going through and being like, oh my gosh, just taking a look at all of that too can be so overwhelming. So I want to, you, you shared so much and it's, it's so... There, I love you sharing again, the steps of change. I think it's so important. I feel like a lot of people may not know them and they also just kind of breeze past. And there is that sense of, you know, just act, act is from, you know, that's where you get the experience is by taking action. So there could mm -hmm. be this sense that is adding fuel to the fire, but I wonder when you're saying that it could take years to think about it, whatever the changes yeah. that you want to make, what where's the line between overthinking and just spinning your wheels and ruminating about it so that the negative self talk starts seeping in and how can people discern between that, between getting really having clarity yeah. and thinking versus rumination? Yeah. Such a great question. If you're being compassionate with yourself and patient and kind with yourself, that means you're also being honest with yourself. And you will know when the line is and what is likely to happen at some point. I never talked to anybody whom this has not happened to is that you cross the line and you're like, I should have done this a month ago. I, nobody says I'm ready. And it's like on the dot. And then they right. do the thing, <laughs> you know, you either do it like feeling like it's too early or knowing that you probably could have done it a month ago, or you don't know you don't have any orientation to the time and you just do it. Right. And it doesn't matter that the idea that you're talking about is I don't want to mess up. That's the undercurrent of it. 
right? So it's not focused on the internal experience of I'm so excited to launch this podcast, right? It's like, I don't want to mess up and not do it at the right time. And that's a like external metric, Mm. right? And what does that mean to you if you don't do it at the right time and you did it a year later? You know, imagine yourself being 92 years old and someone saying to you, it was so great that you wrote that book when you were 35. Too bad you weren't 34 though. (laughs) Nobody cares. Nobody cares. And so really, really creating awareness that, you're going to be honest with yourself and in your own honesty, you might find that you're ready. Mm -hmm. And when you encounter that level of honesty, which you can only get to with a compassionate voice, that's the moment that you recruit support. You do two things. You recruit support around you and say this idea out loud, even if it's just to a stranger or a therapist or, you know, some kind of, it doesn't have to be an Instagram announcement. It doesn't have to be like a big banner pressure thing. And, you know, letting the words hit the air of saying what you want is powerful, right? So you recruit support and then you understand that in order to bring that thing to life, you can experiment, you know, it doesn't have to be, okay, I'm ready to start dating. So that means I'm going to go on a date a week for the, for the rest of the year. And that's my resolution. I don't like stuff like that because it's like you commit to something before understanding how you're going to feel internally in the midst of that process. Mm -hmm. And so experimenting looks like understanding that there's more than one way to do something. And you're going to try this way because at this moment in time with the information you have and the resources available to you, it seems like the best option. And if you discover in engaging in it, that there's an even better way or that it actually wasn't what you thought, then you course correct. And this is all accomplished with a good amount of self-trust. Yes. Really do this work. If you don't trust yourself, you don't have to trust yourself a hundred percent. That's what it's based on. And in order to trust yourself, I mean, I talk about, that's a whole other topic at the back of the book, like trust requires um, a sense of forgiveness for yourself, for things that you've done, which have basically you've betrayed yourself. And I, I say, like, show me someone who hasn't betrayed themselves and I will show you a child. Like we all do that. We all, I'll just speak for myself here. I have had so many moments where my instincts have kicked in and I have known this is not the right person to be with. This is not the right job to be in. Even on a small scale, stuff like I need to leave this this party right now, but I've stayed in all those situations way past their expiration point because I'm trying to get some external thing, get someone to like me, prove my worth to someone, prove that I'm a valuable employee and I was the right decision and not disappoint, you know, whatever it is. Um, and we take those experiences and sometimes we say, well, like, I, it would be nice to trust myself, but I can't because I fucked up in the past. And it's like, tell me something new. Everybody has, you know, everybody has. And so you need to take that information and understand that if you would have had more support at that time, 
and you would have maybe given yourself a little more access to stillness and to listening to your intuition and then having support around you, um, you would have made a different choice, but you didn't have that stuff. Now you can create that stuff as an adult and then you go about the work of doing it, which, you know, again, easier said than done, but these are also skills and skills can be learned, you know, skills can be learned. This is another thing about your writing that again is so accessible and so encouraging. There was so much reassurance that was through the book. There was so much reassurance and respect, which is what you referenced early on in our conversation. There was a sense of like, we are at the same level. I'm Mm -hmm. not talking to you from a higher place. And it just allowed myself to feel like, yeah, I totally can do this. I could totally move through. I I can totally forgive myself. Like things didn't seem as scary. Things didn't seem as daunting thing. You had a way of creating the space of like an internal awakening of like confidence and reassurance and uh, a self-respect as well that -hmm. just came through when you were talking again. So I I wanted Mm -hmm. to highlight that. And I, and also for me, you got major cred because you would take these almost like mug club kind of personal development quotes, like you just said something that made me think of when you know better, you'll do better. And you're like, well, not really. Like there, there, there's different things that you shared that I'll, I'll say for people to read the book to see, but you share things that were like, you know, this sounds great in theory, but in practice, it doesn't look as clean as that. And for perfectionists that can get really messy, which leads me before we continue on to just hit on, cause when you were talking about, you know, the podcast, like what's the right time. It made me think of procrastinator perfectionist and then messy. Mm-hmm. Can you just, uh, you should probably just record this and play it. Cause you're so tired of probably saying all five of them, but can you go through just for, people I'll go through them really fast. There yes. is a quiz that has a description of all of these. Yep. And I, I also want to say, I, I framed a lot of the, um, of the book around perfectionist perfectionism paradigm, but it's really about this basic thing of like, what do you want? Yes. And why do you want that? Mm-hmm. And three, what are you willing to do to get it? And not what are you willing to do to get it in terms of like, come on, let's like a like broy style, right? Of I mean, like, are you willing to abandon yourself to get it? Why is that? Why is it so important to you? What do you think it is going to give you when you get it? Mm-hmm. Because I think we're all chasing things that we tell ourselves that we want when we haven't examined our desire enough and done a sort of anatomy of our own desire to really be able to stand by what we're saying we want, you know? And it's like, that is part of, that is the spine of the book is like, when you are ready to face your fears, you don't ask yourself what the worst thing that could happen is. You ask yourself, what do I really want? Because what you might find is, You've been, you know, an associate at a big law firm for the past four years. You don't really want to be partner or, you know, you've been dating someone who's the most wonderful human being, but you don't really want to get married to them and you can't maybe explain why, or do you know? And it's like, you don't have to, it's your life. It's your desire. Desire doesn't need like a a thesis statement and explanations (laughs) for you to honor it. Um, The five types of perfectionists are 
classic. This is like what we typically think of, you know, buttoned up, highly predictable, highly reliable. All of these types have pros. All of them have cons. Perfectionism is not something that is bad. It is something that is powerful. And the core of it, before I I really dive into the types, is like, if you are the kind of person who sees your reality and then also sees the ways that that reality could be improved and you feel an active impulse to try to bridge that gap and you feel that active impulse more often than not, like in a patterned way, you can call yourself a perfectionist. And we think of perfectionism as, well, I need everything in a row um, in this behavioral sense. But what I discovered in, you know, working on site at Google in my private practice on Wall Street and working in a rehab and working with, you know, kids who had been severely abused and neglected was that all kinds of perfectionism shows up in all kinds of different circumstances. It's not just behavioral. It can be emotional, for example. It can be interpersonal. I want this person to perfectly understand me or perfectly like me. I want a perfect relationship with God or my body. I want to love my body all the time, no matter what. You know, all these different iterations of this kaleidoscopic, powerful thing that needs to be managed, just Mm -hmm. like love, just like wealth, just like anything that's powerful needs to be managed in order for it to be healthy. So managing it starts with awareness of how perfectionism is showing up for you in your life. Classic perfectionists, like I said, highly reliable, predictable. Um, they say what they're, you know, they do what they say they're going to do in the way they said they would do it when they said they would do it. But the, on the con side, these are not people who like to work in a way which necessarily engenders collaboration. It's like, I really care about this thing. So I'm going to do it all by myself. So make sure sure to get it right, you know, and it can be isolating and they can come across as kind of haughty or I'm better than you. So I'm going to, and they can also feel really taken for granted because it's like, oh, that person will always plan the vacation or they'll always make the deck or they'll always do whatever. A procrastinator perfectionist is like when you want the conditions to be perfect before you start. So these people are so thoughtful. They are not impulsive, which is such an asset They think about everything and can see everything from a 360 degree angle Um, on the con side. And they like prepare their preparative measures are like amazing, but on the con side, their preparative measures can spill past the point of diminishing returns. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, you're prepared. (laughs) Now you get, you, you're been prepared. Now you got to execute the thing, but they don't want to execute the thing because part of dealing with something not being perfect is absorbing loss. Once you bring something into the world and start something, it's not going to remain the same way that it does in your head because it's going to take on a life of its own relationship, a book, a podcast, art, the way you look it, you give it life, which is so exciting when you bring it into the world, but then you can't control it anymore. Perfection is control. So that's such a connector to messy. It is because messy perfectionists are the counters to procrastinator perfectionists. They feel the same loss and mm-hmm. they try to mitigate that loss. They just feel it at a different stage of the process. Mm-hmm. So a messy perfectionist in love, love with the beginning can, can, is just romanticizes everything, 
someone who is a procrastinator perfectionist feels so much anxiety around starting messy perfectionists, like feel actively like in active enjoyment. They like want, there's no anxiety. They push through it easily. But once they get to the middle of the process where there's like that tedium and it gets real and you have to like file taxes on your business, you just started, they're like, uh, I don't, I can't do this. <laughs> and they, they, you know, take that experience of this isn't as fun anymore. Mm. You know, like now we've been dating for three months. It's not, it's not feeling as exciting as it did and perfect as it did in the beginning. They take that as a signal of like, oh, this isn't right. Cause it's not perfect. You might not be using the word perfect, but you're operating with the pie chart in your head. Of like, this is I how exciting I should, this is how excited I should feel. This is how comfort, comfortable I should feel. This is how, you know, all stressful I should feel all that stuff. Um, they're, yeah, they're also managing loss. Um, the loss of like what the thing was when it started. Mm-hmm. And then, um, there's the Parisian perfectionist. I named this type after French women. And that French beauty aesthetic, which is so understated and sophisticated and seems effortless, but behind the scenes, it takes a lot of work, right? And so Parisian perfectionists, unlike classic perfectionists, do not display their perfectionism. So there's a sense of embarrassment about how hard they tried to do something or how much they wanted something, such to the point that they will not announce that they are launching a podcast until they've had five podcasts out on Apple podcasts and they, they know they're, they're doing okay, mm-hmm. you know, because it's like, they don't want to tell anybody because what if they fail then that, you know, what happens then? Right. And so the, the pro of this type is you do not have to explain to a Parisian perfectionist how powerful connection and relationships are. They just get it. You don't have to teach them that stuff, but on the con side, it's like they want that connection so badly that they take a shortcut. And often that looks like toxic people pleasing and like this continual abandonment of self. Um, And then the last one is the intense perfectionist. And this person wants the perfect outcome. So they on the pros side, unlike Parisian perfectionists, do not care if you like them or not. They are looking to get the thing done and they will get the thing done and they have razor sharp focus. But in the process of getting the thing done, they can sometimes, if they're not managing their perfectionistic energy, um, really override their own well-being and the well-being of the people around them to the point where it's like, great, you got the thing done, but at what cost? It's like, you got your whole team to hit the goal but half of them are going to quit next quarter because Mm -hmm. they are miserable. They don't like working for you. They don't feel appreciated or seen, you know? It seems like classic on steroids, like an extended version. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the thing about classic perfectionists, which is different than intense is like, there's a little bit of a meditative quality in classic perfectionism of like, it's really about bringing this beauty and art into the world in the form of order and, um, and routine, almost like the waves hitting the ocean. It's sort of like, Oh, this is like peaceful, routine, predictable, beautiful, intense. is like, I need this outcome, you know? Um, because all my worth is riding on that thing. Yes. Oh my gosh. So clear. And people can be a mix in some areas of their life, which you go further on in in the book. 
Yeah. You can be like a messy perfectionist when it comes to dating. You know, I have friends who love the first, second, third date. I have other friends who are like, get me past the stage yeah. so I can just get to the <laughs> part where we're just chilling on the couch and ordering Thai food or whatever. You know, you can be an intense perfectionist at work and then come home and it looks like your house got ransacked and like you don't, your goals in other areas of your life are all over the place and mm -hmm. you're not focused. You don't have, um, an idea of how you're going to streamline through the process, you know? Yeah. It's so interesting. And I feel like, you know, the special series that you're part of right now is create like a mother. And it's, I do want to get your thoughts there when it's, when it comes to adding the role in of being a mom and how that can exacerbate maybe dormant perfectionism or perfectionism mm -hmm. that was already there. What are your thoughts on supporting moms out there, no matter what stage of parenting that they're at in being able to, I guess this is like a two-part question because it's, it's how can they have the compassion for themselves? What does that look like in action? Even if it's not visible, but it's palpable internally. Right. Yeah. But, um, and also just the importance of having a space for themselves to create whatever that looks like, whatever creating looks like, how that can create a sense of wholeness mm. instead of feeling like they've lost themselves. Yeah. Oh God. We could talk about that for so long. Mm -hmm. we? Um, the first thing that comes to mind is this expression that I always bristle at and it is you can only be as happy as your unhappiest child. And I heard that often growing up and I still hear it now. And understanding that your happiness as a parent is a way to teach your children that love is not codependence. So if yes. I'm only as happy as oh my, my happiest child I get that on the surface. I get what people mean when they say that. And, and it's beautiful, again, on paper, in theory. It's like, you know, I love this human being so much and I want them to feel alive and engaged in life and live, leading a joyful life. That's all of our dreams as parents, right? But if you, if you hook your own sense of a joyful life onto that, then what you're teaching that child is when you, you know, let's say you choose to get married and your partner isn't happy. You are going to demonstrate your love to that person in the solidarity of misery. And you're teaching them that codependence is how you express love. And that's not true. Interdependence is how you express love, not independence, not I don't need you. You never affect me. I'm over here in my bubble. That's not real, right? We're always talking about like, let's be more independent. No, between independence and codependence is interdependence. When I need you and you need me, but we also exist in a space where I can take care of myself and I don't need to broadcast my love for you by being miserable for you and me being happy, like partners and parents do this a lot where they're like, I'm going to be happy enough for the both of us. You know, imagine your partner coming home or your kid coming home and they're in a bad mood. And what do we do as parents? We respond with like, well, you know what? We're going to have our own little party here and we're going to do this and we're going to do that because we're so uncomfortable letting these younger people 
who are full, whole human beings already. They're not going to become whole human beings when they're adults. They already are. We're so uncomfortable letting them be sad, upset, rejected, unsure, not confident, awkward. These are part of being human. And the most wonderful thing that you can give to your children is a sense of self that is not impacted by their performance on how much they can regulate their mood, on whether they're in a relationship with someone or not, on whether they got into a certain school or not. That is a recipe for disaster and disconnection. It's and so, so that's good. really like, that's, right, let's that's sort of like the groundwork. <laughs> I gave okay. you two questions back to back. So this is so important, what you just shared. I just want to pause. So, and I, I love podcasts because people can go, what just happened and rewind it. So rewind. It is so important. My therapist said the exact same thing. I cannot stand when people say I am as happy as my most unhappy child. His take on it, which may piggyback on yours, is also then you're putting this pressure on these kids that they can't be anything but happy. Or else mom. And so there's that other flip side of codependency. Like I have to be happy or my parents are going to be unhappy. It makes me think of the um, Carl Jung quote, your own, you know, the biggest burden on a child is the unlived life of a parent, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And they're going to be unhappy because human beings are unhappy often, you know, especially if you're someone who's, who's willing and open enough to try new things, you're going to fail a lot and they're going to hide that from you Yes, because they are hiding it from you. They're going to experience that as shame Mm. and they're going to then hide it from others because that's going to be the emotional sort of like pathway they create in their minds. Yes. You know? So now as I'm saying this, I'm thinking about parents that might be listening that are like, oh my God, I'm going to create this emotional pathway. And this is going to be the rest of the way my child relates to it. There's a, a lot of pressure, right? And I want to kind of like let the air out of that pressure a little bit by saying that, you know, if you have done any of this stuff, I think what a lot of us do is quietly pivot to a new way of doing things. And that's okay. That's fine. I think a better strategy is to say it out loud to your child, no matter what age they are, figure out developmentally appropriate language to say, you know what I was doing that I'm going to work on and I'm not going to get it right all the time, but I'm really going to work on this, you know, and then explain it so that your child has a model and an example of someone who has engaged in a certain way, discovered that that's not what they wanted it to be and is pivoting into yes. a new way oh, so. and, it, and, and be proud of yourself in that moment and animate your proud, your pride and, and label that with language because then you allow them to do that. And you're saying, you know, I kind of realized this is a mistake mm-hmm. and I'm gonna, you know, do it in this new way. I'm really proud mm-hmm. of myself for realizing it and doing something about it. You know, who's going to help me, you know, say your best friend or your therapist, or this book is really helping me. And I, I need a lot of help because I've never done it this way before. And you're just like modeling yes. what you want your kids to do. It sounds so simple. It, 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 and it's like, we're trying to think of the best you know, the best like sports teams to include them in and the best, this and the best, that the number one predictor of mental wellness. And this predictor beats out socioeconomic status. It beats out, you know, whether you are engaged in extracurricular activities or not, it beats out how much trauma you encountered as a child. 
the number one predictor is your relational wealth. Mm -hmm. Do I have a one person in my life that I can really be connected to that sees me, that I can trust, that is a safe person. And we hear all those words as parents and we're like, oh, of course that's me. I love you. It's not safe if someone comes to you with their difficult emotion and you scramble to get them in a different state. You're doing the verbal um, version of shoulder shaking them and saying, this way of feeling is bad. You are being bad right now. We're going to get you to the other side. When you, you know, say, well, have you thought about it this way? Well, can you do this? Well, let's do our own, you know, it's like, just let this person be seen and sit with them with that tough feeling and just say back the last few words they said to you. Like, that's what therapists are trained to do. And we need training because it's not natural, especially when it's our kids, right? So if someone comes in and they're like, I had the worst day of school. It was so hard and nobody even talked to me. Nobody talked to you. Then they might say more. And then that does sound hard. Oh, don't fill that space with a bunch of tricks, tips, hacks, solutions. All they need is connection. That's all they need. When they want solutions, they'll ask you for it or they'll get it from somewhere else. Your job as a parent is to provide that sense of safety and connection. And you can come home and be who you are. And if who that is is sad, right now or in this season of life, like that's okay. And that it's a season. I love that reminder too, that it's not permanent. It's a season. And I I feel like there were two things that you said that made me think of, of two different pieces. One is um, I remember reading a book by Dr. Shauna Shapiro and she took a mistake and she shifted it to missed take. And that was everything I was hearing when you were talking about pivoting and that role play of that parent going, you know what, this is what I was doing. This is what I'm going to start doing. It's like, it was a mistake and it it lightens the mistake, right? It lightens it, that it's normal, that it's human, that it's, they feel safer with you so much about fear. When you were talking about like the verbal shoulder shake, there's so much fear coming through that we don't think our kids know, but they're human beings, they're energetic feelers, they get it. Mm -hmm. So there's Mm -hmm. something to there that has to do. And I wonder what your thought is on this is, is it because we're so uncomfortable with our uncomfortable emotions that when we see them, we get more uncomfortable where if, if we became more comfortable with our sadness and with our anger, would we handle it differently? Would we have more patience? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. We don't want them to become overwhelmed and make decisions from that place of fear and chaos. And if you can't do that for yourself, it's hard to imagine that that's possible. And I think the goal, if you want to think about it in a certain way, I love, by the way, your mistakes. I use the word misstep because Mm -hmm. I like to call it a misstep because it's like you're walking, walking, walking. You're going to take 5,000 steps. And if you take, you know, 17 in this direction, who cares? Just go back, you know, just a misstep Um, is you want to think of the goal is not emotional neutrality with your kids and yourself. It's emotional regulation. Mm. So it's Mm -hmm. not what you're feeling that is negative or positive. It's your ability to regulate yourself and your nervous system. And by regulate, I mean, 
get yourself to a space where this one emotion or experience is not eclipsing your whole emotional landscape. And then you're making decisions based on just seeing one color in the world, you know, and it's that color of that emotion. And when you're, you know, a lot of people in self-help and on these like five second Instagram clips and all this like sort of pop psychology stuff are kind of trying to sell emotional neutrality as the goal of, you know what? You're not attached. You're not too happy about it. You're not too sad about it. You're towing the line in the middle. Blah, blah, blah. Well, that's like spiritual bypassing. No, right. It's like, right. It's like <laughs> no, you can, you can be really pissed and mm-hmm. upset, but you need to understand like, who are the safe people to talk to about that and who are not. Yes. And you know, there's this strategy uh, and like, how can, what can you do to your body to help it to begin to regulate itself? You know, there's this mantra that I use personally, which is that rhythm regulates. It's why we rocked our babies to sleep when they were little, because the rhythm of back and forth, like even teaching your daughter or son to go outside, dribble, dribble, shoot, dribble, dribble, shoot. You can stand still. The the rhythm of that is going to regulate you. You know, walking regulates a lot of people. If you're, if you're all feeling like all pent up and emotionally claustrophobic, it's very hard to feel that exact same way after a half an hour walk because left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, you know, rhythm regulates. That's probably one of the best coping mechanisms you can teach your kids because they can understand it on any level. I, with my six-year-old, when she falls or she's upset and having a tantrum, I say, do you want to take a magic walk? And I lift her up. And I just take long strides, almost like I'm doing lunges, just hold her back and forth. And it is not a minute before she just catches her breath. You know, it's so hard to just even catch our breath in those moments where we just become so overwhelmed Yes, and you don't need solution in those moments. And our kids don't need them either. We just need regulation and connection. Once well, we're see. regulated, then we can connect. Yes. And I, the, the, so many visuals that you shared about the color, because we have the rainbow, we are not just one color. So I'm just throwing in visuals for people. If they're like, oh, that really resonated. I'm going to keep that in mind when I'm seeing red. And I mean, oh, there actually are more colors. I just need to open to that. Or the eclipse, I kept seeing a mountain, like you might feel like the mountain is the one big, heavy emotion. And it's just that it's being eclipsed might have a big shadow over it. But if you turn right, the idea of your daughter, the idea of the basketball, the whole thing. And what I'm hearing is solution almost is shallow in these moments. It doesn't have, have that depth. Like it's almost a putting a bandaid on what really is underneath. And when you're talking about your daughter moving through with you in that beautiful magic walk, it's giving us all the invitation to drop back into ourself and we have yeah. to feel safe to be able to do that. So thank you. Absolutely. For yeah. And solution is important. Um, there's a strategy in the book by Dr. Irvin Yalom, who's like in his nineties. Now he is, you know, just this famed therapist and he has this strategy called strike when the iron is cold, that the time to address an issue, a hot button issue is not while it's happening or when you're upset about it, it's when you feel good and regulated and connected. So if you and your partner, for example, are constantly fighting about, you know, you come home half an hour late and she's always mad at you because you're half an hour late and you don't text her. The time to talk about that is not right when you get through the door and you're like worked 
up about it. You know, you want to think about a time when you're laughing on the couch and, and then bring it up. You strike when the iron is cold because that's when people are regulated and that's when they're most receptive to hearing the solution and considering implementing that solution. So, you know, um, an example of how to do this with your kids is like uh, Dr. Lisa Jamore talks about this all the time of using car rides. There's not the pressure of eye contact and you know it's time boxed. Use those car rides to strike when the iron is cold. But to go back to your original question, perfectionism and parenting is where my perfectionism, maladaptive, the unhealthy kind, like lights up like a fireworks show. Like that's my Achilles heel and something that I'm always working on. And the way that it shows up for me is in this pie chart of what I think is like an appropriate, i.e. perfect response to being often being frustrated in some way. Like if I plan this whole fun, we're going to go to the zoo at Central Park, and then we're going to walk around and I pack these snacks and they're healthy and they have the, you know, peanut butter and jelly has secret chia seeds in it for your omega-3s and all this stuff. And, and we get to the zoo and my daughter only wants dip and Dots. And she doesn't care about the animals. And then we leave to the park and I want to be home and I want to watch my iPad and blah, blah. And I might just get so irritated or upset or just overwhelmed of like, why do I even, you know, whatever it is. And in that moment, my perfectionism kicks in and it's an emotional perfectionism. And what it looks like is, hey, all moms are allowed to get upset. That's what we think is a perfect response is like, I never get upset. That's not what perfectionism is. Perfectionism is it's okay to get upset but your upsetness has to be in proportion to what your kid is doing, right? You're not allowed to get that upset that it's taking them 17 hours to tie their shoe and their shoes are Velcro. <laughs> you know? You're not allowed to do this stuff. And whenever you hear those rules for yourself, usually that's like covert perfectionism kicking in mm -hmm. and that is a space to be examined. And so for me, it, it always kicks in with parenting stuff where I'm like, I'm more frustrated than I'm supposed to be. And then I have to step back and say like, what does that mean supposed to be? What is the rule? No, I am allowed to be as frustrated as I want. What's not okay is taking out this frustration in ways that don't align with my values. Mm -hmm. And I, and if I don't do that, which I don't like, it's fine. But in the moment, it can just feel like you're failing or that's how it feels to me because I'm like, why am I letting this ruin my afternoon? Da, 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 da. And then you can so easily spiral. And that doesn't happen all the time. But when I am not really paying attention and, you know, maybe there's a perfect storm of like, I'm over caffeinated or didn't get enough sleep, or I haven't taken care of myself in the way that I know that I should, there's like a little weak spot and yes. those kinds of things can just blow up out of nowhere. And what I talk about in the book is like, if you're wondering if you're a healthy perfectionist or an unhealthy perfectionist, because there are both and research backs that there are lots of ways to be a healthy perfectionist. Like, let me kill the suspense. You're both. <laughs> like, nobody's healthy. Being healthy is not like a coordinate in space that you arrive at, you know, plant your flag in and then chill and send postcards to everybody else. Like that's not how it works. Life is not static. We're constantly moving, changing, shifting, and, and we like to fantasize that healthy is just this thing that we achieve and then we're done. And you can be really healthy and have some really difficult moments where you know better and you're not doing better. 
you know about it, you know the right thing to do and you're not acting on it. And those moments beckon for your own compassion and patience and, and, you know, reaching out for support. Oh my goodness. You're so funny. I was, I was trying to hold back some of my laughs, but some busted out. You're just, you say it in <laughs> such a passive way. It's so funny. And I love the time box going back to Lisa Demore. I love the idea of a car being the time box. It's She's so, so great. Oh my so God. Good. I like kind of want Abby to be a teenager so I can just apply all the things that she says. Um, oh. cause she's such a great therapist, uh, and, and has some really wonderful ways of, of, describing all these, all these things that feel so tough when you're in the, the stage. Yes. Like I look at so many of my friends have teenagers and it's like, it, it just, when you've mastered whatever stage your kid is at, it's like, it's like the enter this again. whole other realm where you're <laughs> like, Oh my God, it's it so funny. End. You know, you did share, you did share one thing. We just have a few more minutes. So I did, I did want to get your thought on the creative care. So I definitely want to get that in, but I just yeah. want to play back something that you said that I love because it's a self-regulation tool in and of itself. And it's so counterintuitive when you were sitting there, let's stay with the fun example of like internally he feeling yourself growing with frustration that your kids aren't tying their shoes, even though they're, they're Velcro, which is so great saying to yourself, first of all, noticing it is self-regulation. Right. And then in addition right. to that, saying to yourself, of course I'm allowed to get frustrated. It's so counterintuitive, but it actually decreases your frustration because you're giving mm -hmm. yourself that permission. So it's like this double load of decrease of all of the stress hormones that are flying through that can easily be thrown up all over your kids. So I, I love that. The mm -hmm. creative care piece, when you were talking about like taking care of yourself, self-care has been so overly used that it almost has created a sense of a diluted quality to it where people don't take it so seriously as, or, or as important as it is. So the reason that this series even was started within the podcast was because I'm such a huge proponent of creative care being the mother of all self-care and whatever that looks like because it's self-expression to you and chances are it goes back to when you were a kid, what lit you up? So can mm -hmm. you just share your, anything that comes to mind that you're like, this is something I want to share of just to bring home the importance of integrating and, and creating the time, not as an extra to do, but how it's so essential and fueling yourself and how it can expand yourself in the roles yeah. that you take on as a mom, just the, the creative care aspect. 100%. Yeah. I love the language of creative care. Thank you for introducing that to me. I don't know that I've ever heard that as a concept. I don't know. Before. It might be out there. I don't know. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I think, you know, when we're talking about creativity, we're talking about your ability to access your energy, the unique energy of who you are, and then go and animate it in some way, whether that way is for your own private joy or for public consumption. Um, and this process of access animating is we all do that at some level every day, hopefully. And that to me is what I describe in the book as operating with premium quality energy. And that is, is, you know, people think of the word perfect as meaning flawless. And so perfectionists want things to be flawless all the time. When, when you actually take the word perfect back to its Latin roots, it, it goes back to per facere, completely done. That's why when we say someone's a perfect stranger, we're not saying they're a flawless stranger, right? They're a complete stranger to us. And so understanding that like what you want as a perfectionist or someone who just like wants things to be better, you don't have to identify with that label. 
is that you want wholeness. You want it to feel completely done. And you yourself as a human being, you know, person, mother, you want to move around in the world feeling whole, feeling that premium quality energy, feeling like that high almost of I am being who I am. And it feels good. And creative expression is a natural byproduct of that. And you can't get to premium quality energy without taking care of yourself. And so whatever practice it is, what I would have to say to that is the amount that you do, whether it's two minutes or one sentence doesn't matter. It is not commensurate to what you keep awake and alive in yourself. And so I think a lot of people wait until they have like, I'm going to have a writing hour in the day, or I'm going to wait until I can paint on a canvas alone. And I'll tell you a weird story um, before we end, which is when I never knew that I, I didn't really like identify with being a writer at all. I'm a therapist by training, obviously. When I was studying for my boards, my GREs, I had this book that was like GRE vocabulary book so that I could do really well on the component, the language component. And I used to take these, I'm old school when I study. So I use <laughs> note cards and I used to take these note cards and write this word and write the definition. And on the backside, I would write my own sentence to help me learn the word. And for some reason, I looked forward to that so much because even just taking a definition of a word and writing one sentence, there was a part of me that that was the only time I ever wrote anything creatively. And I didn't even know I wanted to be a writer then, or maybe I did know on some level, I was too scared to say it out loud. But even writing those one sentences, it was like weird. I would get home from work and I used to work like 12 hours because I was a social worker and be like, I can't wait to do my vocabulary card. <laughs> and it felt like this nerdy thing that I was like, why do I love this so much? This, this is confusing. And it's like, when you feel a pull to something, follow that, trust that, you know, like a part of your body or soul or mind sometimes understand something before you have the ability to articulate it into language and make it a clean understanding. And that's what happened with that vocabulary stuff. And I always think like, wow, how powerful it was to just have, you know, I do like five cards a night. It wasn't a lot, just five sentences of creatively writing a sentence gave me so much energy mm. in the midst of like a really exhausting moment of my professional career of like, social workers, you know, any social workers listening, hats off to you is what I have to say. But yeah, it doesn't matter um, how small. If you do it, you are going to operate with premium quality energy. Your kids will see that and they will connect to their own sense of, you know, creativity and premium quality energy because that kind of energy is contagious, just like negative energy is contagious. Another thing I can't stand when people say, no one can make you feel a certain way. Yeah, they can. Someone <laughs> walks into a room and punches the wall and throws an adult tantrum. You're going to feel scared and you're going to feel like this person is not someone I want to work with. And, and I'm tightened up and I'm, I don't feel confident to say what I need to say right now because I don't know what the fuck is about to happen. And so just like negative energy is thick and dense and contagious, a, a mother particularly in her creative energy is wild and contagious and, and really intoxicating in a very healthy way. 
Oh my gosh, Catherine, that's, it's so, the, the example you used is so fantastic because we sometimes make it so big, like creativity in such a traditional sense and yeah. find more time. And then if you're have a very, if you're in the dense fog of like the militant perfectionist inner critic, it's like, why aren't you finding more time? That's one more thing you should be doing. And it's like, no. So I love you making it so accessible again, accessible and reassuring. And that sense that I, I love the idea of you saying that you noticed that inner nudge. I don't think you said nudge, but like that inner nudge, like, oh, that's really fun. I'm going to follow that. I'm going to have that. What a wonderful way to also practice strengthening, not abandoning yourself. It's the same muscle, mm -hmm. right? So if you, mm -hmm. the more you can do that, the more you can internally somatically feel what it feels like to listen to that nudge. So when you're at a cocktail party or if you're in a networking event, or if you're on a job interview, you'll notice the feeling of when you start to, so then you can have the choice to come back. Yeah, exactly. Well said. I love that. Yeah. Because what, what lights up your creative spirit and what looks like fun to you is not going to make sense probably to other people. <laughs> you but know, what makes so, much more, so it's much... much more authentic and unique to you. It's yeah. So awesome. Yeah. But like, you know, these ideas of like, well, what's fun, like board games or this or that. It's like, uh, fun is a very individual thing. And when you're having fun, you, it, what that means is I'm present and I'm, and I'm open. Yes. And so that's the same. That's, a, that's like the twin of creativity is being present and open. So if you don't even know, like, well, I don't even know how to be creative. I don't aspire to be a painter or this or that make a playlist. Like what's fun for you. That's enough. You know, just like, what is kind of fun? Start there. Catherine, thank you so much. This was, I could talk to you for this another, is, I could this talk was to fun. you endless. This so I'm going to, I'm going to pause here, but I just want to check. Is there anything else that you feel is lingering that you wanted to share that came to mind that you feel is one more thing, or do you feel like you pretty much got it? You know, I really love this conversation. And I think if anything struck anyone in the conversation, uh, that's why I wrote a book because none of this, none of what we're talking about, these big topics can fit in a book or in a podcast, but you know, there's always another string to pull and the, uh, the other string to pull, if anything struck anyone is, um, the perfectionist guide to losing control, a path to peace and power. It's available everywhere you buy books and on audible. I've been listening to tons of books on audible. I love it. It's like very relaxing to me. Yes. Depending on the person's voice and you have a wonderful voice. Did you mm -hmm. do the, I did my own audible. Yeah. Wonderful. And I mean, a double bonus there, you know, so you get <laughs> to hear it in, in real time voice, but it's thank so you wonderful. for having me. This means so much. Your work is really important. And you know, being able to prioritize your creative self as a mother is something I have really had a hard time with and need all the reminders and all the voices in my head, just reaffirming that that is not only okay, but good and beneficial and all that stuff. So thank you for being another voice that reaffirms that important message. And thanks to everyone who's listening for just being open to the messages that we're talking about and maybe considering looking at perfectionism and the way you move through the world in a little bit of a different way. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the So To Speak podcast. If you found 
some insight or some useful nuggets in this episode, I want to hear about it. So make sure to connect with me on Instagram, on LinkedIn at Christy Mandor. Also go ahead and share it with anyone else you feel could benefit from the messages in this episode. And while you're at it, go ahead and throw up a rating and a review wherever you're listening in from, which helps significantly in other people learning about the podcast because it takes all of us to get ahead of our heads. I'll see you next week.